Welcome to Rebecca Sounds Reveille. Today, I have a special guest who is going to talk with us about finances. And as you know, I always want to deliver a really good program that will allow you to take tools and resources that you can use either during or right after the show that's going to make a difference in your life. And today's guest is going to do just that. In fact, he's going to deliver a punch that really, well, I read his book. He's an author, he's founder of Sound Income Strategies, and he's a nationally renowned money manager, CEO, like I said, and founder of Sound Income Strategies, and founder of Advisors Academy, and has his own practice, Scranton Financial Group. He delivered a punch when I read his book. He's incredible with words and a way to really describe finances like I have yet to find in all of my digging in finances. And many of you may not know a little bit about my background when it comes to finances. I actually have done a little bit on giving or providing a little bit in that area. And I may or may not share that during this interview, but it's not about me. This is really about my guest, who is really one of the nation's most successful and respected independent financial advisors. In fact, he has really specialized in income generating savings and investment strategies for over 20 years. He has really developed this business model that has been brought out on a lot of national levels and it's been recognized on a lot of media, prominent media um, places that you may or may not know of, such as Bloomberg, CNBC, Fox, Business, and other outlets. But really, that's not what we're talking about today. We're going to talk to you about his book, The Retirement Income E-Store. And I really want to point this out because he brings it to you in a completely different perspective. The Retirement Income E-Store, the story behind the launch of The Retirement Income E-Store. And with me today is David Yes. David J. Scranton. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for such a flattering introduction, and it's great to be here. I am really excited because after delving into your book and having mm -hmm. a completely different view of the way I looked at finances just from the first, wait, wait for it. Are you ready? Third page. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was completely blown away. The first thing I want to I just want to thank you for allowing me to really delve into it and be immersed within mm -hmm. the first few pages because really that made all the difference for me on whether or not I was going to continue to want to read more. Good. Well, I'm glad. I'm just happy here we didn't put you to sleep because uh the first goal of writing a book is always to make sure that you don't put your readers to sleep. That's not the way to get a bestseller. So uh, I'm glad to hear that. And I'm excited to hear also what you feel as though you got from the book that you thought was so, that was, that was so different. I mean, I, I kind of know, but then again, I'm the writer and I talk about this all the time. So uh, just 
Can't wait to hear about it. Okay, I'm gonna give you my notes. I'm gonna, I, I have to tell you page three, paragraph two, and I'm going to quote this because what interests me is probably going to be something that interests the audience. And this is going to be something that I think because it has to do with finances is going to be where we're going to go with finances today. And then we can probably go further into your book, but it's going to be about finances. Here we go. They're supposed to de-risk as they age. Most people who are at or near retirement, the types of people who need to know to be making these sorts of decisions have no idea. And then dot, dot, dot further in this sentence, most advisors don't either. In big letters, I wrote, I don't know if you can see this, profound attention grabber. This comes to, that came from a writer's perspective. This came from a reader's perspective. And this came from a person who is at retirement age and said, boy, does that hit the nail on the head right there. Mm -hmm. See, most people know, in theory at least, they should de-risk, right? You need to lower your risk as you get older. You don't have as long of a time horizon. Most people know that, but they don't know how to do it. Or they believe that by de-risking, they'll get such a just, a just a paltry return on investment that it's not worth it. So what they do is they roll the dice a little bit, in many cases, a little bit too long. Um, and sometimes they get lucky. You know, people who retired in 1990 and rolled the dice and kept it going, well, they had a great decade ahead of them. The first 10 years of retirement, the markets did great. And if they didn't de-risk, they were probably wealthier because they didn't. But it was a gamble. In that case, they won the gamble. Conversely, if somebody retired in the year 2000 and didn't de-risk, well, their first 10 years of retirement were probably accompanied by at least one part-time job, or if not more, or for a severe reduction in spending, things that maybe they didn't plan on the day before they retired, but got thrown at them shortly after retirement. And that's what we're trying to prevent. By educating people that there are other alternatives, there are alternatives where you can get a decent return on investment without crossing your fingers and toes and rolling the dice in the stock market, um, just by knowing that gives people hope that there's that there is a better way. And now maybe we can de-risk when we, when we know we really should in our hearts. This is what I found really exciting too, because this was a different viewpoint, a completely different perspective about money than I think I've ever viewed. And mm -hmm. oftentimes we talk about money coming from a perspective of going in instead of you talk about this in your book. I mean, we go in with a completely different perspective than, and I don't want to give all of your secrets away because I think that the audience really needs to read this. And I will, I will talk about some of the things that really did it for me in here because mm -hmm. I know that if I'm feeling this way, obviously that my viewers and listeners will too. But... Mm -hmm you know what you're doing and I know that you do specifically by the things that you point out in here. But one of the things I want to ask you is how did you come to name it an e-store? How did you come to that? Well, it's actually 
the, the, the opposite is the retirement income store E. So it's S-T-O-R hyphen E. The story behind the retirement income store. And what the retirement income store is basically a system that we franchise. Um, I have a couple dozen advisors around the country that are very like-minded that together with me helped really build our, our model and helped educate consumers across the country, investors across the country. And as we decided that we're so similar that we're going to franchise this and really streamline it so that you know an investor in LA uh, knows that they're getting the same quality control, the same philosophies, the same treatment as an investor where I am in Southern Florida, for example. And that's the retirement income store. So with the book, we got a little cute, you know, cutesy, perhaps too much because nobody can spell it. But that's why we called it the retirement income store hyphen E. Yes, I um, so apologize. No, that's all right. The story behind the franchise of the retirement income store. I like it because it's consistent. I like it that it's consistent. And I think that you have coaching and you have training with that. I think that that's really important. But I like that there's even more to it because there's something that you talk about when it comes to money. And you talk about the costs that are involved when it comes to retiring. And this is one area that I think that many times we don't think about. I think that this is probably the number one off most times often overlooked area of retirement. Sure. When I went into the workforce and I think that this is something that most Americans that went into the workforce were told, you need to save your money. Where do you want it to go? Do you want it to go into a 401k? Do you want to have a 403b? And that wasn't even, 403b wasn't even mentioned to me until later in life. Mm -hmm. Do you want to have a mutual fund? And that was never really even explained to me. What do you want to do? How are you going to invest your money? And I never really understood investing. In fact, it was very scary to me. It is for a lot of people. And so fear most often equals avoid avoidance. Right. Right. And so we tend not to go to a financial advisor. We tend to not invest our money. We tend not to become educated and in the end, we don't realize what happens to our money. And there's this reliance upon social security. And then we find out in the end that there's something else that until you get to re retirement, we don't know what's going to happen until we reach page 29. Well, it's interesting <laughs> because... <laughs> And I had to do oh, no, some I, homework. I hate looking at my own picture on television. You're torturing me. David, you shouldn't because you made me do some homework. Because page 29 for me made me realize I had a hobby, which is this, my, my TV show. And that cost mm -hmm. me money. And mm -hmm. if I want to travel, that's going to cost me money and grandchildren 
and my children have expenses that even though they're adults are now costing me money. Mm -hmm. And I was under the assumption that because they were now grown, now I have one and I'm using a plural term because I know other people who are listening have more than one. Really expected that because they're grown and they have jobs, really are independent. But when they multiply, so do your expenses. And page 29 gave me a realization that I didn't have prior to what I was going to need for my retirement. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I had to go there. I did my homework. I love it. I love it. That's good. Um, I, I, I knew that someone, uh, I, I understood that there was a book sold on Amazon. At least now I know who purchased the book. So I appreciate your patronage. Um, but, but it's interesting because when you're at work, you're not spending money. I remember when I first got out of college, I had bartended my way through college. And a, a friend of mine uh, was working the door as a bouncer. And got through college and we started in the financial world. And we were, we were doing okay. And a friend of mine said, you know, my, my friend said, look, let's, let's go back on Friday and Saturday nights and let's, let's go back and let's work at this, this club and you could be, you could bartend and I'll work at the door as a bouncer. And I said, but we're not going to make that much money. And the money is better spent, you know, times better spent focusing on our businesses and growing those. He said, Dave, he goes, I don't care if they pay me zero, but if I'm stuck Friday and Saturday night working at this club, the real benefit for me is all the money I'm not spending because I'm not going out on Friday and Saturday night. It's not what I make. It's what I don't spend. And the same is true when you're working. When you're working, it's not just about the fact you're earning money. It's the fact that you're not out spending. When you retire, you have more time on your hands. More time means you want to do more things. Things cost money. So even if you're a voracious reader and you say, well, I want to sit there and read books. Well, you still have to buy books. It costs you money. So somehow, some way, your expenses go up. So all these things out there that say that, you know, you can retire on 70% of your pre-retirement income. Um, well, first of all, those are all rules of thumb. You always need to be careful when you're dealing with a rule of thumb. But moreover, in many cases, that's not true. What a lot of people will do is take their income and say, okay, I'm not going to be contributing to my 401k when I retire. Uh, I have my mortgage paid off, so I don't have to make my mortgage payment. Oh, by the way, uh, my FICA tax that comes out of my check every pay period, well, that's only from earned income. So when I retire, I don't have to pay that anymore. So when I subtract those things, I can retire on 70% of my pre-retirement income. But what they forget is the fact that now with more time on their hands, most people don't retire to sit home and watch television, right? They retire because they want to do things. And when most of us retire, we only have so many go-go years right? How many? Well, it depends. Uh, 10, maybe for really fortunate, 15 go-go years where we can really do all the things we want to do in retirement, where we're not constrained by our health or energy or anything else. So in those go-go years, you have to plan on the fact that what what got you from 100% of your pre-retirement income down to 70%, it might very well push you back up to 100% or even more potentially, if you're not careful. And that's the first step. But as you know from reading the book, the second step is then figuring out how to generate income. You know, it's people save, 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 and they've got 401ks and 403bs and IRAs and stock accounts. 
and they have this pot, these piles of money, but then the question becomes, how do I turn these piles of money into income when I retire? And unfortunately, most people don't know how to do that. And for your viewers, this may come as a surprise, but believe it or not, I'd say 95% or more of the financial advisors out there are also not suited to do that. They simply don't know how to turn those piles of money into income in a secure way. I would have to agree with you on that. And I also would have to agree that all of the things that we thought were safe may not necessarily be safe. And you address that in your book. And there, there was a real eye-opening statement that you made when it came to bonds and mutual fund bonds. Uh, mm -hmm. I might be having that wrong. I don't want to, I do not want to give that away here. And now I want them to read the, the audience to read the book on that. Um, uh, but I will um, make another comment about page 91 and Pam, Pam gifted me the book, by the way. Um, yep. So I want to give her credit for this because this is a game changer for me. But um, paragraph two on page 91, and I'm going to quote this, however, they aren't taught that, taught that this approach doesn't work in a long-term secular bear market cycle like the one we're in now. Couple of things Bible. with that paragraph. One, people don't understand what bear markets are. And two, secular. Those are two mm -hmm. things I think that are foreign to, to lay people when it comes to to finances. They, they hear these terms and don't understand. And it comes back to the word fear. Mm -hmm. Initial fear caused us to be avoidant. And so now what? So it's interesting. I, it was, what you read was actually a controversial statement on my part, because I said the secular bear market that we are still in. And most people don't think we're in a secular bear market cycle. So first, let me define the term, because you're right, okay. I think a lot of people don't understand. There's short-term bear markets, and there's long-term bear markets. And within every long-term bull market, you get little bear markets and little bull markets, and within every long-term bear market, you get little bear markets and little bull markets. Wall Street loves to talk, when they're talking about bear markets, they talk about the short-term cycles. Because Wall Street, really, I call them the Wall Street cheerleaders. They want to talk about, they want to be optimistic about the markets as often as they can for as long as they can, because they know that people are going to invest with them when they're optimistic about the markets. So if they need to talk about a bear market, a down market in the stock market, they want to make it sound as short as possible. So they love focusing on these short-term cycles. Okay. But in a long-term, in a secular bear market cycle, what happens is all the little bear markets, little bull markets all wash each other out, where for a long period, oftentimes 20 years or longer, an investor is literally getting zero net growth in the stock market because the good years and bad years all negate each other. And so my real world definition of a bear market is just that. If I'm getting zero growth for 20 years or longer, well then that whole cycle is a bear market. I don't need some Wall Street salesperson telling me, but there was a little bull market in there because if the bull market was washed out by the bear market and I'm being talked to buy and hold, 
then I'm just going on a heck of a roller coaster ride. But 20 years later, I ended up exactly where I started. Right. And in, in, in the book, we try to teach people these cycles. And what's interesting is when you study historical cycles in the stock market, it's shocking how history tells us that it's, they, they tend to repeat themselves in a very predictable, repeatable fashion. And most people know that we had a big turn in 2000, right? The 90s was wonderful. And then 2000, the markets dropped. But in 2013, the markets finally went above the level from 2000. So what a lot of people would say, we had a 13-year secular bear market. 13 years with zero growth, with two major drops in the middle. Think of 2000 and 2013 as like a big W. Because okay. you had the tech bubble bursting, and then you had the financial crisis. And so people would say, well, we broke above that level in 2013. We're in a new secular bull market. The worst is over. And that could be true. Except if that were true, we'd literally be breaking three world records regarding the stock market. Three. Now, I'm not going to say what they are because, as you indicated, people can buy the book and read about that. But we'd literally be breaking three world records regarding the stock market that have held for well over two centuries. So personally, I believe, and there's a preponderance of evidence out there which says that the only reason the markets did what they did in 2013 is because the unprecedented levels of government influence, all the Federal Reserve's printing of money to try to stimulate the markets. And of course, right. that's all artificial. And, and that's why I make the comment that we still are in a secular bear market cycle. And we have another pretty significant, according to history, another pretty significant stock market drop ahead of us. How significant? According to history, it's got to be at least 40% from today's levels. And if you're retired or you're within 10 years of retirement, a 40% hit is painful. It is. Because, because if it takes, you know, the first time when the tech bubble burst, it took seven years for the market to drop and come back. The second time with the financial crisis, it took six. That means a 40% drop, it means that it could be six or seven years before you're made whole again, before your money drops and comes back. During that entire time, you're getting zero growth. So if you wanna retire in 10 years, that means that a good portion of that period might be eaten up just waiting for the markets to come back, which for most people means that, most of your viewers probably means that they can't retire in that 10 years based upon their goal. They may have to work longer or retire at a subpar standard. And most people simply don't want to do that. And it would be very wise to know where not to put your money, especially by someone that's not educated when it comes to placing money into certain risks or such. And so I, it's been very fascinating Um to learn about, especially when it comes to bonds or mutual funds. I mean, th this has just been a, a real eye-opener for me. I, I cannot even imagine that some of this stuff that seems so, I, and I'm not super savvy when it comes to this. This is lay person, you know, triple zero here when it came to understanding this. And I read this and I thought, how could... I understand this with what you just presented to me and somebody that's been in the financial industry who's had training not understand that you can't put your money here 
and I just could, this just blew my mind. So this is really interesting. So with what you're just sharing, it, it would only make sense that we need to know that especially now, this with this being presented, we need now more than ever to know where not to put our money. And, and, and I have to tell you that I appreciate your kind words because it means that the book accomplished its goal. And the goal was to speak in layman's terms to educate people that there are other alternatives. You know, sometimes when we're so far in uh, a sector of our industry, we get blinded because we have strong beliefs. You know, if you talk to an orthopedic surgeon about a chiropractor, most surgeons, if they were being brutally honest, if you, you know, injected them with truth serum, they would say, uh, chiropractors are quacks. We don't believe in chiropractors. Mm -hmm. If you talk to a chiropractor, a chiropractor, would say, oh, don't go to an orthopedic surgeon unless the last resort. Don't go under the knife unless right. you have to. Well, the reality is most of us common folk, right, know that there's a time when you go to a chiropractor and a time when you have to go to an orthopedic surgeon. Right. There's a place for both. But for those that are in those particular niches, those professionals, sometimes they don't see it because they believe so strongly in what they do, they can't see that there's an alternative. So they lose the common sense side of it. So and that's, that's the purpose of the, the purpose of the book is twofold, not just to educate someone like yourself, Rebecca, that there's uh, an alternative in, in, in simple layman's terms, but moreover to create a grassroots effort with financial advisors so that financial advisors now have to listen to their clients who are reading this book, who are hearing about it and open up their minds. You know, it's the same reason think about it this way, the uh, big pharma. Big Pharma advertises all over television and radio to us about certain pharmaceutical drugs. Now, you think about it for a minute. Well, why would they possibly do that? We can't walk into a pharmacy and get these drugs. We need a prescription. They right. should be marketing to the doctor. But they know that sometimes doctors are set in their ways in terms of what they prescribe. They could be almost stubborn, if you will. And they're not open to new ideas sometimes. So by getting a grassroots effort by marketing to us, and getting our interest in a certain type of medication that, that might benefit us, we now talk to our doctor. And now, if the doctor doesn't want to seem totally uninformed, he now needs to learn about this medication and maybe start uh, integrating it in his repertoire of drugs that he occasionally prescribes. Right. So it's the same thing here. Just like the doctor, sometimes financial advisors can be stubborn as, as the prescriber. They can be stubborn in what they prescribe for clients. And it's the same solution for everybody, whether you're 20, 50, or 80 you need mutual funds, or whether you're 20, 50, or 80, you need ETFs. So by, by educating the public grassroots through this book and through my television show and all these other means, it allows us to, to then get that grassroots interest growing so that now advisors come back and say, okay, I need to learn about this. What is it I'm missing? Mm -hmm. And that's my real goal because working with, with investors, it's really just one at a time and to get through America, especially with the baby boom generation, one at a time, 70, 80 million people would take a huge army and a lot of time and we just simply can't do that. But if I can, through this grassroots effort, educate the advisors, there's a better way to go. Now I've leveraged the effort and, and now people like yourself won't be reading this book and it won't be a shocking thing because their advisors will actually be talking to clients also in a way that makes sense to the average investor. And that's ultimately the goal. 
I absolutely love it. I, my goal is to help people and provide a tool resource, something that actually will allow someone to take something away from the show, either during the show or directly after, and you just hit a home run. So I thank you so much for being here. I know that you have directly impacted me and I want to thank you for that. And I know you have done that for the audience today as well. Well, you're very welcome. And it's my pleasure being here. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in to another episode of Rebecca Sounds Reveille. David, tell us where we can tune in and get a copy of your book and watch your show and connect with you if we want to get some financial advice. Well, as far as the, uh, the book's concerned, uh, Amazon, go right to Amazon, get a copy of the re uh, Retirement Income Story, again, S-T-O-R hyphen E. I have to spell it out because it's a little confusing. Um, and every Sunday morning, my show, The Income Generation, is on, on Newsmax television. Newsmax can be found on Dish, DirecTV, and on most cable providers. And if you want to find out more about us, go to our website at soundincomestrategies.com. That's soundincomestrategies.com. Thank you all for tuning in again. I ask that you share this episode with your friends, your family, all of those loved ones that you have, everybody that you know and all that you don't. <laughs>